welcome back. It's time for our weekly conversations with some of the world's most amazing, but maybe not so famous achievers. On the one show we call Conversations with Not-So-Famous Achievers. On what they did and how they did it. And what we can learn from their journeys. With your host, Will Christ, and of course, Robert White. Hey, welcome to all. Uh, I'm so excited about our session today because I get to uh, introduce our uh, my dear friend, uh, Daryl Stenson. Daryl and I met in a retreat for business people up in Utah. He is imposing, first of all, physically. He's about 19 feet tall and uh, way more fit than me, uh, which induces a tremendous amount of jealousy. Uh, but uh, He's also a presence in terms of his energy, his being, uh, and uh, uh, I'm especially excited about having him be with us today because I've just finished his wonderful book, even though I'm certainly not an athlete or a post-athlete post or anything like that. But I found the book amazing, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Daryl, welcome. Delighted to have you with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for everyone tuning in. It's going to be fun. I hope we don't scare anyone away. <laughs> well, I, got a, I got a question for you right away, Daryl. Uh, Come on. Robert Robert mentioned something. Uh, you're talking about life after sports, right? That's right. So, Robert, I want to ask you, for us, for you and me, is, is there such a thing as life before sports? <laughs> <laughs> well, Daryl's uh, uh, involvement was definitely not as a spectator. He is... Uh, uh, an elite athlete who uh, got ambushed by physical energy or physical injury. Uh, uh, he certainly has a lot of energy. Uh, and uh, the book's a lot about, uh, certainly about what happens when your identity as an elite athlete gets taken away from you. But, you know, for many of us in, in whatever we do, we have an identity. And sometimes that identity gets, uh, whether you say crushed or, disappeared or attacked or, or somehow uh, our confidence in that identity is lessened or even destroyed. And uh, uh, Daryl's journey around that is the part that, among many things, that, that really uh, interested me and fascinated me and that I learned from. Oh, tell us, Robert, uh, Daryl, tell us a little bit about uh, about your book. And, and uh, I want to hear about the book, but I also want to hear about where it came from. Yeah, so the book, Who Am I After Sports? An Athlete's Roadmap to Discover New Purpose and Live Fulfilled. In it, I talk about my battle with mental health, and I open with this story of how I was laying in the psychiatric unit, screaming at the doctors to leave me alone and just let me die because I didn't think I had life after sports, that it was worth living, that there was anything that would fulfill me like athletics once did. So I open there, and then the core of the book is our athletes transition roadmap, which is really a transition blueprint for anyone who is trying to figure out who are they after you fill in the blank. Who am I after business? Who am I after marriage? Who am I after military? And it is one of those things where if you're in a season of transition, maybe you went through the pandemic and lost your job. Maybe you were an executive for 40 years and finally retired. And you're trying to figure out who am I after this thing the book walks you through the five phases of transition. And then I end with this really poetic story that goes deeper into my psychiatric experience. 
and um, offers hope to many people who read the book. Can you tell us a little bit about what put you in there? What was the what was the the injury that you found? Yeah, I, I always tell people this way: my identity was attached to my activity. It was there was no separation between the work that I did and the person I was. And so, anytime your identity is attached to your activity, you make poor decisions. And so, when I got hurt my freshman year. Instead of uh, focusing on my education, which is what my coaches offered me the opportunity to do, um, I decided to come back after a back injury to play Division One football. I mean, I begged, I kicked, I screamed to allow them to, to give me a shot to play because sports was who I was. It wasn't just what I did. And so they they adjusted and they said, sure, try it out. And the way that I sum up this story is that I wasn't supposed to walk within more than a mile within six months of my back surgery. I was starting within six months. And I did so at a cost to my physical health. Mm-hmm. I manipulated the healthcare system. I was getting multiple epidural shots in my back. I was getting acupuncture, physical therapy, seven days a week, two times a day. Uh, they prescribed me to these things called opioids. And so I were, was taking illegal doses of these opioids to continue to numb my pain to play the game of football. And it was all in my head in hopes of like, hey, when I get to the NFL, then I'll be able to stop this addiction. Then I'll be able to stop abusing the healthcare system. And I'll find some great specialist like Robert and he'll be able to fix me. And uh, it, it just didn't happen. I just got worse. And um, because I was so physically gifted, I was still able to earn a starting position. We won a MAC championship. I played with some great players. Some of, if you follow NFL, Antonio Brown, who's one of the best receivers of all time, arguably, uh, Eric Fisher, who's the number one draft pick, a couple other Super Bowl winners. And I was amongst that elite team. And my hope was to play at that next level. And one thing I, I say here is that no one knew I was battling depression because when you are extremely talented at anything, it's hard for people to see beyond your gift and to see the person. And I was so desperately wanting people to see that, hey, I was going to these extremes to be able to continue to play this sport, but I was going home, not wanting to wake up the next day, not feeling like I was enough, mm. feeling like if I lost this thing, this athletic ability, this, this, this activity in sports, then no one would really care about me because prior to me playing sports, no one really liked me that much. I know I'm handsome now, but I wasn't always that handsome. <laughs> All right, so so you, you, I I see this picture of a really tough experience for you, successful on the playing field, uh, and then going home and struggling. Absolutely. So uh, you're not there now. What changed? Well, I crashed and burned. Um, going into my senior year, I had been taking so many opioids that it was thinning my blood to the point where every time that I would make contact on the field, my nose would bleed. Coaches would ask me, Stinson, what's going on, man? I'm like, nothing, coach. It's just allergies. And, you know, they would allow me to play because they needed me. And um, the I was, um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but you're not supposed to play Division One football after a back surgery. <laughs> 
And, and, and I did that. So the pounding after two years of that and practices and weightlifting, I started to develop this permanent hunch in my back. And you could see that there was a lot of tension between my legs and my back because when I would run, I would kind of limp. But I was extremely fast. I'm six foot five. I was uh, an all-star track athlete in high school. So I ran a four four for a six five guy, which is like unheard of um, athletic speed for a guy my height. So I was running, catching running backs, <laughs> limping. And so um, they, they kind of knew something was wrong, but they couldn't put their finger on it. Going into my senior year, they were like, man, there's too many nosebleeds. This guy's missing practices. He's a he, nobody. We're hearing rumors about him getting some illegal procedures done. And whatever it is, we don't want to get ourselves in trouble. We don't want him to get hurt. So we got to we got to we got to stop this thing before it gets too bad. And they called me into the training room and they said, hey, this is it. Um, we would love for you to still be a leader um, around for the underclassmen, but uh, we can't allow you to do this anymore. And boy, was I pissed. <laughs> I mean, I thought they quit on me, gave up on me. Not only were they not paying for my medical expenses to begin with, because they would have been liable for my injury or death on the field, but now they wouldn't even give me an opportunity at my dream. What would I do without that? And so I imploded. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know some of the stuff that Robert teaches, and I'm sure you're aware of as well, which is simply how to communicate my emotions. The only emotion I knew how to communicate was anger. Mm. So I stormed out of the weight room. I was mad at everybody. And I started to have these thoughts of, man, life is not going to be fulfilling without my first love. It wasn't that I didn't think that I would be successful at anything else. I just didn't think that I would be fulfilled. And so one thing led to another. I started to mix my alcohol with pills, hoping that I wouldn't wake up the next day. I started to toy around with suicide letters. The one person that I confided in was this girlfriend I had dated. She's my high school sweetheart. Uh, We dated for four and a half years and we did all the cheesy, cute couple things that young people do. We picked out our kids' names. We wrote my last name next to her first name in cursive and all that cute stuff. And we had our whole life planned. Well, when I wasn't going to the NFL anymore, she left me and got engaged to another man, which validated this insecurity that I had that I wasn't enough to be liked without sports. Worthless, right? And I don't know if you guys ever been there where you're you're good at something. Maybe they like listening to your radio show. Maybe you're just so handsome that you're known for your good looks. And you're like, man, do they actually like me for my personality, for my character, for my unique character traits? Or do they just like me because I can sing, because I can make them laugh, because I'm great at business? And when she left me, I was like, see, I knew it. That's the only thing people like about me is my ability to play sports. And otherwise, I'm worthless, right? Exactly. That's exactly how I felt. And so I, I wonder like, how many people in the world feel that way right <sighs> now. A lot of people. It's, I, I believe it was, it's what causes divorce. I believe it's what separates children from their parents. I believe that it's what causes uh, overworking people who cannot leave the office because they are defined by what they do. If mm-hmm. I don't meet this sales quota, if I don't meet this business goal, then, man, I, I don't have any ground to stand on because people just like my performance. They don't like me. You know, when I uh, 
read your book, Daryl. I, I was really touched, really moved. And one of the memories that brought up for me was a number of years ago, I read a long article about the uh, famous Japanese baseball player, Ichiro Suzuki. You know, he was a big hit in Japan. He came to the U.S. It, you know, just absolutely incredible story. You know, 200 or more hits in his first 10 seasons. Uh, he hit 262 hits in 2004. I mean, this Whoa. guy this guy was a monster. But the, it was at near the end of his uh, career. He had played for the Mariners. And he, had, he was now playing for the Marlins down in Florida. Uh, you know, he hit the, he became the only the 30th baseball player in history in Major League Baseball to hit 3,000 hits. Uh, unfortunately, he did it uh, against my uh, Colorado Rockies. <laughs> 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 However, um, what the article was really about was that he could not, he was staying in the game way longer than he should have stayed in the game. Mm-hmm. He was sacrificing his health, uh, and uh, he was unhappy and all of that stuff. And the people around him would not confront him, Mm. which is a similarity to your story. But the big thing was that he could not imagine any life after baseball. And uh, and I, I remember reading it and going, what incredible sadness it generated in me that this superstar who had done it all and made tons of money and fame and and accomplished so much, was unable to see what was next for him in his life, Mm. that there were, you know, just like for all of us, that uh, there's many ways to contribute, and he couldn't see that. And Mm. I was was so sad for him. He eventually transitioned to the front office of the Seattle Mariners. They made a spot for him, and I I think that very generous thing to do and a very human, mm. human thing to do. Mm. And I don't know all of the story about his, his leading, but this idea for uh, an, an elite athlete yourself or a hero, or for an elite business person who has a disappointment, maybe, maybe they got fired. Maybe they got transferred to the uh, a division of no responsibilities, you know, different things happen. Uh, maybe they get, uh, some problem in their marriage that ambushes them, or at least that's their experience of it. Mm-hmm. And and in in the work that I do with executives, quite often it's generated by some kind of a wreck. Yeah. You know, some something happens like that, mm-hmm. and it's it's based around this issue that you address so wonderfully in your book about losing an identity that you have built carefully, strongly, committed yourself to, and uh, uh, but it becomes the defining belief. Uh, in your life mm-hmm. and and when it goes away you are adrift you're lost you know that my friend john denver has this great song called sweet surrender mm-hmm. one of my favorite lines from a song is lost and alone on a forgotten highway mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> and when i read your book i thought of that also but it's a so great what, book what all right so what do, what do we know about about preventative or or uh, um, things to do when uh, I mean I'm, I'm just thinking about this whole notion of helping people become aware that mm-hmm. they can uh, create their whole identity mm-hmm. with regard to a particular 
uh, culture, a particular uh, personal trait or a particular uh, activity? Uh, mm-hmm. How do we, you know, how can we help people to become aware of that? Yeah. From a high level, um, when I talk to executives and companies, here's one thing I say that helps them to grasp if they have an issue or not. Is I say, do you have a system of success uh, in your company or in your life? Do you know disciplines, habits, routines? Is there a system that helps you to be successful? Mm-hmm. Hands go up, raise. I've got that. And then I ask them, well, what's your system of self-care? I take vacations once a year. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the problem is that oftentimes we have systems for success, but we don't have systems for self-care. So we start there. How do I develop a system of self-care for myself? Um, and we do that through journaling. We do that through meditating. We do that through uh, f- f- play and fun and having activities to do <clears throat> that has nothing to do with our work. As it relates to developing a sense of identity on the preventative side, we have to start to not just become aware of what our other skills, talents, passions, likes, desires are, but we have to start rewarding those as well. Give you an example. My parents, my cousins, my third, fourth, fifth cousins who probably weren't even really my cousins, they just lied about it. <laughs> <laughs> They all found a way to attend my my athletic games. When I graduated from high school and celebrated, we do an open house. It's kind of our tradition, invite all the people to celebrate my high school graduation. Mm-hmm. Third cousins, fourth cousins weren't there. We valued and celebrated athletic ability more than we did education. The same can be true for our children as they grow up and there's certain things that maybe they excel at. We definitely want to affirm that and, and, and all their accolades, but we need to give just as much attention and rewards to when they're making kind decisions, to when they're having fun and they're playing. My daughters, I have three daughters. They're all in the age of seven. They come to me about something that seems so meaningless and they want to show me some craft that they made or they want to show me you know, this weird little thing that they figured out how to do with their toys and make it go down some slide like a domino effect type thing. And I need to celebrate and award that so they can start to see like, hey, I'm not going to tie my identity to this one area of my life where I'm ex- where I excel at. Those are some practical ways we can begin to be preventative in the way that we develop our identities. Well, I can imagine that uh, there are there are uh, people who organize their life around being always on uh, in this particular thing that they've projected to be their identity. And then the vacation is really just a time to breathe away from it because I'm going to come back and get right back in. Is that what happens, Robert? Well, anything that is habitual starts to become unconscious Uh and uh, both good habits and bad, unfortunately. I think what Daryl's pointing to is the need to really it is self-care. It's take it's developing routines that include a broader piece of your life. Mm-hmm. I did some research a few years ago about people in transition. At the time of the 2008-2009 uh, economic contraction, many people, many senior executives lost their jobs. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the reality is they weren't going to get another one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of the things that we found out was that divorce rates in America have been generally uh, stable for 20 or 30 years. But within that stability is a huge difference depending on the age of the married couple. And that is that younger people were getting divorced at a much, much lower rate. And people over 55 were getting divorced at a very high rate. And one of the learnings behind that was that marriage, and this was at that time uh, primarily a male uh, thing uh, to, to be the breadwinner and the woman to be the little woman or whatever, the housewife and the mom. And what we learned is that the guy had one interest, which he pursued and was incredibly successful with. And it, it's, ama- it's amazing, you know, that making the $500,000 million a year salary with bonus. And, uh, but that's all that he knew. And, you know, a lot of travel, generally, a lot of meetings, a lot of late nights, all that kind of stuff. But in the meantime, his wife has maybe gotten involved in uh, an Oprah book club. And she's uh, she's going on a vacation once a year to uh, Tucson or somewhere like that for a retreat with her college friends. She's uh, maybe got involved in something like uh, Landmark or Lifespring, the company that I founded years ago, and uh, did some personal growth work on herself. Uh, she's more active in her church. She's uh, She's got a, a wide-ranging group of friends that she meets for coffee or a glass of wine. Uh, she develops a broader and deeper sense of relationship with the world that she's part of. And uh, then this guy comes home, he's just been laid off or fired mm. with no other life. And that that kind of quite often leads to divorce. She learned how to do some self-care. He didn't. He learned how to work. And, you know, that pattern that I see in my executive clients is unfortunately quite common. Uh, they're almost embarrassed to tell you about some interests that they have away from work. And uh, they don't celebrate that. Uh, you know, Daryl's point about his kids is absolutely accurate. You know, we get what we get approval. Whatever we get approval for becomes part of that identity. Mm-hmm. And again, when we become unconscious about it, <laughs> it can trip us up. Daryl, do you see this uh, across gender lines? I mean, is it is it generally men who are following this pattern of of uh, projecting my identity onto something, and and women being more relational, or is it is it is it a different characteristic for for yeah. both? In my experience, it is high achievers is the type of person that it affects more than men or women specifically. If I had to trace a X factor, I would say seven out of 10 times when a person has identity um, issues or a, a, a one dimensional view of their identity, I trace it back to the lack of a emotional and physically present father in the household. A lot of people have fathers who are physically present, but emotionally absent. Mm -hmm. And it's a father's role in large part to shape the identity of their child. 
It's something about hearing dad say, I'm proud of you. That just carries a weight that oftentimes it doesn't carry with mom because mm-hmm. mom is a nurturer. She's supposed to love her yeah. child, but right. dad, dad's approval just carries a different weight. And I, I, I swear seven out of 10 people I talk to, whether they're male or female, when we, when you really start digging into their childhood, you can trace it back to a father who wasn't emotionally present or wasn't there at all. I can tell you, I can tell you exactly the most important thing my dad did for me. What's that? When I was a junior in high school, he came home and he said, now my name was Buzz at the time. And he said, Buzz, we're going to buy you the great books of the Western world. Mm. I still have those up here on my shelf. And that just opened the world for me. And it wasn't just me because I I lived in the library, our local library. But for him to say, this is what we're going to get for you. That just made my world. Mm. Wow. That's incredible. You know, we're going to take a break in a moment and uh, uh, hear from our some very supportive friends of Will and mine. And but. Daryl, I'd like you to just kind of prepare yourself to either dig into a question I'd like to ask you or to learn how to very smoothly avoid it. You're talking just now about the absence of a really present father in people's lives. I know that's also a contributing factor to many people with problems with addiction. I know you've done a lot, a lot, a lot of work and uh, that you had a recent really tragic happening with some people that you're very committed to, that you loved, respected, and and uh, were working with deeply. I'd like you to think about how you've come through that, how you've, in effect, recovered from uh, losing some very special people in your life in a, in a really tragic accident. But for right now, let's, uh, let's take a break, and we'll be back very soon. Traction Tools is the EOS software for visual collaborative problem solvers like you. Built to manage each key component of your business, including vision and traction, data, people, meetings, and even process. The new digital whiteboard helps you illustrate, communicate, and work together throughout the decision-making process. And our new document drive makes file sharing even easier. So, if you want to save time and reduce repetitive tasks with easy automations... You really should take a look at Traction Tools and their EOS software. Sign up for a 30-day free trial at MyTractionTools.com. That's MyTractionTools.com. And now back to our show. Thanks, Paul. I uh, And again, uh, Daryl, you know, I, I, I'm uncomfortable asking you to be as vulnerable as if this kind of situation requires. So... Uh, feel free to duck it a bit if you'd like, but you know, what happened in your life? What were you up to and and how did that all get interrupted for you? Yeah. Well, let me reframe vulnerability for those who um, may be a little shy at that word. And I'll, I'll play to our competitors edge, Robert and Will. So when someone dares me to do something like they say, I, I can't, you know, <laughs> there's a little high school kid around the, the block who told me, uh, to check up, like play him one-on-one in basketball. And I'm like, this guy doesn't know that I, I was an athlete. Like I'm, I'm getting ready to destroy him. I might look fat, but I still can play. <laughs> and whenever I'm challenged, I never see it as, as uh, 
as a as a weakness. I never back down from that. I actually muster up the courage to take on the challenge. I see vulnerability the same way. Vulnerability takes incredible strength. It's actually weaker um, and takes less strength to not be vulnerable than it does to actually be vulnerable. So when I'm asked to be vulnerable, I take on the challenge the same way I would if someone's asking me to play them one-on-one. So challenge accepted. (laughs) Um, I started an addiction recovery ministry here in Metro Atlanta, started with about 17 people. And it was uh, just one partner and they would meet um, in a room that was vacant in our church. And we would, you know, give them coffee, water, give them a message of hope and inspiration, help them with tools and resources to get their life back together. Long story short, over the course of a year and a half, it started to grow really fast. We see over 100 people each week at one location, but we also have an offspring of seven different partners throughout the community who are offering addiction recovery services in some form or fashion. And from leading that kind of charge, started to mentor some people who were really serious about achieving great levels of success um, as it relates to influence and popularity and that type of thing. One of these young ladies was the name, her name was Normie, and she had uh, more than a year clean. And uh, we would tell when they would get like a year clean, we would start to tell some of their stories about how they they came back and overcame this addiction. And we would get the film crew to, you know, do interviews and I'd ask them questions and we'd highlight and see them in their environments and just be a really cool way to honor, honor them and celebrate their legacy and really promote their future. And we had did a series of those and uh, Normie would be like, Daryl, you know, when are you going to tell my story? When are you going to tell my story? And I was like, you know what? We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Got busy, pushed it off. And uh, the week before this tragic accident happened, in fact, it was more like three or four days. She saw me at church and she said, when are you going to tell my story? And I was like, Deesh. I had developed another leader. I wasn't actively leading it anymore. I was, so I'm still involved somewhat, but not as hands-on. I was like, dang. But I was like, you know what? I'll figure out something. She was like, good, because I have a story to tell. I'm going to inspire a lot of people. I'm on vacation in Florida. The phone rings and um, they say, have you turned on the news? And I said, no. And they said there was a tragic accident. Uh, the 15 passenger van had 16 young women in it. They lost control of the vehicle as they were trying to turn off the exit. It flipped over. It caught instantly on fire. She burned alive. And uh, four died instantly. Uh, everyone else was in critical care. Two of the other individuals ended up passing away a few days later. And uh, the rest survived. And uh, I was so frustrated. Because I did, I violated one of my rules. I, I, I say never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. And I did that, and um, I put it off. And I was, I was uh, hurt. I was mad at myself. I obviously missed her. Life has a way of awarding us second chances. In the middle of me crying and mourning and figuring out what remarks I was going to offer to the community because the phone was ringing. Uh, One of those phone calls was a news channel reaching out saying, hey, we are so sorry for your loss. We were wondering if you're comfortable telling us a little bit more about Normie. I had the opportunity to tell her story on national television. And it's not how I anticipated it, but it's me still fulfilling what I promised her. 
Mm-hmm. And you should have seen her funeral. It it was packed. You she would have never guessed. I would have never guessed that this is the amount of lives she impacted. I mean, to her family, she was short, sort of like the black sheep, and you know they had given up on her. And and at her funeral, because of her electric personality, uh, she loved to dance. She had influenced so many people that the the sanctuary was full. And I got to tell her story again in front of those people as I offered my remarks at her funeral service. It has been one of the most rewarding things in my life, and it has lit a fire underneath me to share other people's story. I'm so grateful that you guys are allowing me to share mine and giving me another platform to share her story because she's what I would call an everyday hero. She might not be famous. She may never write a best-selling book, but she made a huge impact. Not so famous. Not so famous. (laughs) And it reminds me of the Dr. Seuss quote where Dr. Seuss says, to the world, you may just be someone, but to someone, you may be the world. (laughs) Wow. You know, that that notion, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing the story, touching our hearts, and also for the lesson that's within it. Uh, it it's an, it's, you're incredible, and, and that's an incredible story. Neither Will nor I are psychologists, but we kind of tend to play one on uh, TV, you know, that kind of thing, and, and certainly try to have an understanding of people that's deeper than how they present themselves. And this piece about vulnerability, is, uh, you know, I remember watching the uh, video of uh, Brene Brown uh, that, you know, about 20 million people have watched (laughs) on YouTube. And, uh, you know, she's incredibly gifted. She's done the research. She's smart, smart, smart. But she's also got a a self-deprecating kind of sense of humor, (laughs) you know, that puts the message across. I'm uh, personally, I'm not that interested in getting into the story of why particularly men uh, hesitate to express vulnerability, uh, but rather, uh, what can we do about it now? You know, and, and I know there are also women that kind of stay in a lightweight story instead of getting a little bit deeper. It's, mm. not, just, it's not just men, but I, let's face it, we have, we have developed a, a fear of vulnerability that's incredible. Yeah, my way of talking about leadership is to to remind people that it's yeah. mostly it's mostly based on relationships, mm-hmm. and relationships are based on trust. And a big aspect of building trust is to be vulnerable. What is it that's going to What's it going to take for the superstars, the incredibly successful people that listen to this podcast, or for Robert or for Will, to be more vulnerable? What's What's it really going to take? Uh, since we are, we tend not to want to spend the next two years on a, a therapist <laughs> couch, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. what can what can we do now uh, if we want to be more vulnerable without coming across as weak and all that, all of those fears we have about yeah. being vulnerable? I love this is so phenomenal. By the way, I'm planning to to do uh, several other TEDx talks. I've done two so far. One of them I, I want to do on vulnerability. Uh, all right, I have two things I gotta share. Okay, 
Um, the first one is we have to normalize the conversation. I remember when where you and I met, Robert, when you uh, facilitated an activity for us, you first modeled vulnerability and it set the tone for the room. And it was an extremely vulnerable place. It wasn't something that was a scar from 10 years ago. It was something that's still, still healing now. And that created a level of vulnerability in the room. So we normalized the conversation. To paint this picture, if you've ever been to a conference with several thousand people, if one person stood up in that room and started clapping, they would feel so uncomfortable. Oh, man, am I breaking the rules? Why am I doing this? If everyone stood up and clapped and applauded, the energy level would just go to out the roof. In the same fashion, that's how we need to normalize vulnerability. Oftentimes, it's only a few people. It's that one person in the room standing clapping and it feels uncomfortable. But when everyone does it, I feel more comfortable. I feel a part of the pack versus an outlier. Okay, so modeling and modeling vulnerability is one way that we affect change. The second way is reframing how we see it. Okay. And knowing what a lack of vulnerability actually produces in our life. So at our deepest core, which you guys probably know this better than I, we all want to be loved, to be accepted. Okay. You cannot be fully loved unless you are fully known. The only way for you to be fully known is by being vulnerable. I say it this way. Vulnerability is like the Batman signal for love. The more vulnerable you are, the more it shines that signal to let love know that it's time to rush in. Quick personal story. When I was going through my bout with depression, I was so desperately looking for someone to love me for who I was and not just for what I could do. But that required a level of vulnerability that I had not learned yet how to articulate. So when I would tell people that I'm going through a tough time, I'm feeling down, I'm missing sports, the way that somebody responds to that is far different than the way that somebody would respond to me saying that I'm thinking about ending my life. Wow. Wow. One is more vulnerable than the other. And so if I'm more vulnerable, I then attract more love into my life. When we start to see this is the impact that vulnerability really has, this is how we actually get the love and acceptance we desire. It inspires us to take action and to be more vulnerable because it produces the results that we deeply desire. I want to ask a little bit about, we've we've talked about personal vulnerability Mm -hmm. and being a therapist uh, experiences in, in groups with gifted people like Robert to help us to become personally more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. What I have been just fascinated with is in the EOS process, one of the things that we do every year is we work, we call it team health. Mm-hmm. And what it really is, is vulnerability. We start off with, you know, the first year we were asking questions, you know, six or seven questions about where somebody came from, uh, how many kids, I mean, how many siblings they had. And then, you know, what was the worst job that you had? And, uh, and then uh, tell us something that we don't know. That's one level. Then we get to what we call the one thing. 
And, and what it is, is we go around the circle in the leadership team first saying, uh, Daryl, this is one thing that I just think you are great at. And we share that with each other. Mm-hmm. And then we go back around again. Daryl, this is the one thing I want you to start doing or stop doing for the good of the organization. That becomes, out of the two days, that becomes one of the most highly remembered pieces. Mm-hmm. And, and so what is exciting to me mm-hmm. is, yes, we are getting much more involved with Benet Brown's leadership of, of personal vulnerability, but we can also bring that into the organization. And, and I'll whisper it to you, because what we're doing is exactly what you're saying is we're creating places of love mm-hmm. in, oh my gosh, business. Yeah, I love it. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. You know, the, uh, in my work, uh, it often involves family business. And I'm dealing with some very successful entrepreneurs, and they're starting to think about transferring power and money, and you know, they want to keep their, their company in the family, all of those kinds of things. And my great teacher, a guy who knows more about the dynamics of family business than I will ever know, is, is uh, David Bork. And the way that I met David was I was uh, on the board of directors of the Windstar Foundation, uh, John Denver's Environmental Education Foundation. And we did a once a year event called Choices for the Future. 1,800 people in the music tent in Aspen. uh, And it was just an incredible event, great speakers. And during one of those sessions, the tone in the group, like over a a, two-day period, became essentially anti-capitalist and mm. anti-business and anti-success. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm noticing it. I don't know what to do about it. And then this tall, lanky guy with a booming voice put up his hand and somebody called on him and he stood up and he basically said mm. that uh, he works with uh, business people and they're among the finest people he's ever met. And then he got specific about it. He took on an energy of 1800 people, but with great respect for them, he didn't make them wrong. He just talked about his personal experience in a way that moved me definitely. And on the next break, I I almost ran through people to find him, to introduce myself, to get to know him, Mm. to know, because I uh, admired that so much. Having the courage though, to, really speak your truth, really share who you are and what your experience is. Uh, I think that's what many, many people are stepping up to today and uh, that we can all, through our example, uh, help them do that. Mm. One of the things that our discipline as our 416 EOS implementers around the country, mm-hmm. when we're talking, when we're trying to solve a problem or we have an issue, our rule is we only talk from personal experience. No speculation, no theory, no somebody said this in a book. But the question is always, here's the problem. Who has had experience with this? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's no one. But the, the quality of it, it and it, it requires vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just envision a world where all we do is talk about personal experience. I mean, it, it would be such an astounding world if, if, if 
we weren't listening just to the news about what's going on in in Atlanta or uh, Denver or Laguna Beach. It was really this is my experience that I can share with you. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, we've had uh, we've had a wonderful experience today, uh, Daryl. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable, for sharing a, a journey that uh, is an amazing journey, both of of uh, struggle, uh, of success, of struggle, of redemption, and of uh, of your own personal commitment uh, going into the future. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, just briefly as we wrap up. You know, how can people get in touch with you? How can uh, we support you and your work? Uh, but uh, on behalf of Will and myself, just a, a deep gratitude for today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. You can reach out to me, Daryl at DarylStinson.com. I'm sure you guys got links and show notes and all that stuff for people to take action on that. It's D-A-R-R-Y-L-L at DarylStinson.com. And just reach out to me, shoot an email if there's any way that I can be of service to you or if you align with my mission and my message and want to see how we can impact the world together. It is my deepest heart desire to impact a billion people before I leave this planet. And the only way that I can do that is collectively with other great people like you. Wow. Wrap it up, Will. Hey, Daryl, thank you so much. uh, Because, you know, what we're really looking for here are people exactly like you, people who are achievement oriented and, and probably because they are experiencing more than just that one thing they're not so famous (laughs) so that's why we have these great conversations with the not so famous achievers i look forward to to uh more conversations with you your book is coming to me you have my book uh i have your number we're going to talk love it thank you thanks so much that wraps it up again for another conversation with some not-so-famous achievers. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net. Streaming live from the University of California, Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center.